sometimes people come up with the question, and it's a good question to ask, that is where, when Jesus died on the cross, those three days that he was gone, that he was dead, where was he? Now, there isn't really a definitive verse for everyone. I think there is. I think that really with every major uh, study, every issue that is pertinent to us, there is at least one passage to turn to. I think there are several here, and I think those several combined make the point. There are some, for whatever reason, who might disagree. I think they feel as though they might be succumbing a little bit to a certain more charismatic side that has a negative or at least an unbiblical view of Jesus and where he went. But the question's got to be, though, and here's the question I'm going to ask you guys. Why did Jesus have to die? Now, let's think about this for a second, because we need to understand what was happening prior to the cross. What was the state of man? And even more specifically, what was the state of mankind who had placed their faith in God, who were followers of God? In other words, mainly faithful Israel and those who had come along. Obviously, the majority of Israel was not faithful, but what was the state? What was the status of men? And let's think about the atonement, which is very important because what we have under the old, we see under the new, except we see better elements. We have a better high priest, we have a better scapegoat, and we have a better propitiation. And so what we saw under the old was made better under the new with, with Christ. And there's a question that needs to be asked to understand where Christ was but more to the point, why Christ was wherever he was. Because we need to understand that God doesn't just do things just because. When he does something, when something happens, there is a reason for it. It's not as though these things are just happening just because. Well, there is a because. There's a reason for it happening. So the question that I tend to ask people are these questions. One, was it necessary for Jesus to die and to also to die in the manner that he died. Was it necessary for Jesus to die the death that he died? Was it necessary for him to hang on the cross and to shed his blood? Well, every Christian is going to say yes. Now, when we ask the question, why is that necessary? Well, that's where more discerning Christians are going to be able to step up and say, yeah, I know why he had to die in that manner. One, it says, curses is the one who hangs on a tree. That's Jesus but also in the violent, horrific sense that he died to shed his blood. Why was it, was it necessary that he die? Sure, it was necessary. Why? Because again, we are piggybacking off of the system that God has determined that would satisfy his wrath. Namely, in order for us to be atoned, namely, there needs to be this shedding of blood. Remember, God is the one who determines what will satisfy his wrath, what will atone for sin. And there are three key elements to this atonement. The number one, the first element is there needs to be a covering. Two, there needs to be a cancellation of debt. Cover, cancel, and then because of that, it brings about the third element, which is this reconciliation. The whole point of the atonement is that there would be reconciliation. I want you guys to remember that key point. And so what we, what we see here under the old covenant, under the law, how God has prescribed atonement is that it will be done by way of the blood. So because of that, 
it is necessary that there be propitiation made, in other words, a blood sacrifice for him. So it was very necessary for Jesus to die in that manner. As a matter of fact, even more so because he also takes on the other role, which is to be the scapegoat. When John says, look, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, Jesus is playing that part as well. And so Jesus needed to, one, take the place of sin, which is why he was on the cross. He is on the cross to take the place of sin. He sheds his blood in such a fashion, in such a way, a violent, horrific way, and because that was what God had demanded, a blood sacrifice, and Jesus paid that. Now, the next question, though, and I'm pretty sure many Christians, many of you guys will get that point and even understand that point. The second question is, was it necessary after, would it have been sufficient for Jesus to just have only died? Because in just dying, he would have met the other two elements of the atonement, which is to carry the sin debt and to pay it. But was it necessary for him to not just die, but was it necessary for him to be resurrected? Was it important for him to be resurrected? Well, the answer is we'll all say yes. Now, here's where we might struggle, where some might struggle to find the answer. Yeah, it's necessary, but why was it necessary for Jesus to be resurrected? Well, Paul does answer this question. Let's go to it briefly. He, he speaks about the need of a resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Let's go put it on the screen. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, for faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he is raised, uh, that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins, and those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That is also an important point. We'll come back to that point that he just made about verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life, we are of all men to be most pitied. In other words, this resurrection does a couple of things. One, it gives validation to, to our faith, to our hope that God was pleased and that he also conquered death. So this resurrection is also our hope as well. Even when he's speaking to the people, they said, yes, I know that when uh, when they're speaking to Lazarus' sister, he, she says that, yes, I know that my brother will rise in the resurrection. So there's this hope, there's this belief that there will be a resurrection of us from, from the grave to be with the Father forever. And so that was the reason why it was necessary for Jesus to die and for Jesus to be resurrected. But now here's the question that leaves a lot of Christians scratching your head, and this is going to take us into our question. Is it necessary? Was it necessary for him not to die? We get that. So we know it was necessary for Jesus to die and then for him to be raised, to be resurrected. But what about the ascension? What was the point of the ascension? Was it necessary for him to ascend to heaven? We'll say yes, but is it a yes that we say because we know it's right, we just don't know why it's right. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be resurrected? And that takes us to the point that we are here today for. Where was Jesus during those three days? Now, many people might disagree with what I'm going to say, but I, I'm going to give us biblical proof to show this. 
The fact of the matter is, no one in the history of mankind prior to Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension, no one had gone to heaven. No one had ascended to heaven. Now, I can already hear the, the wheels in your head grinding to a halt. You're thinking, you're saying, wait a minute, what about Elijah? What about Enoch? The Bible says about Enoch that he was no more and he was taken up. The same would be said about Elijah where the chariot comes down and he was taken up into heaven. The question is, was he taken so far up that he made it all the way up and eventually made it to where God was? No, he was not. Now, reading those passages in Genesis as well as in 2 Kings, we would that would be sufficient for us to say, okay, yeah, we believe that they have gone to heaven, but they did not because we're going to read a passage that Jesus makes which nullifies that, and we cannot have a contradiction. Jesus makes a statement in John chapter 3, verse 13. Speaking of salvation, he brings this point up. Now, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about what it takes, what's required for us to be saved, and how we get there, and then he brings this point in in the very middle of it. He says, no one has ascended into heaven. This word, no one, guess what, guys? Even in the Greek, this word, no one, literally means no one. He says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, that is the son of man. So the only one, according to Jesus, who has ascended into heaven is Jesus. Well, that makes sense, since Jesus is God. Well, then where in the world is uh, Elijah and where is Enoch? Well, to be taken up into heaven, the same word for heaven that we think of where God resides, is also the same word where we can where use for the atmosphere for the sky. So simply put, for example, Elijah was taking up into the sky. Well then, now we, we, we've got a question. We've got a question. Now, that doesn't really answer the question as to where was Jesus, but just to make it a point while we're getting to this point, no one had ascended, not one person. Well, why is that important? Well, there was no way for them to go to heaven. There was no mechanism, no means whereby they would go to heaven. And even at Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, still there was no means by which mankind would go to heaven. Jesus' death, his burial and resurrection was not sufficient for them to go to heaven. That was simply enough for us to be atoned for and to conquer death that part is good enough, but what good would it do for us to be Christians, to be able to live forever, never have to worry about going to hell, but always separate from the Father? Because remember, his job was to reconcile us, and that just hadn't happened. And so what he's going to do is he is going to reconcile mankind to heaven. Now, Jesus makes a statement. He makes a statement, and I understand why some people will take this to mean that when he died, he went to heaven. But he's also going to say something else that's going to nullify that point as well. Jesus says in Luke 23, 43, he says, he says, truly, truly, I say to you when he's speaking about the thief to the thief on the cross who placed his faith in Christ, who says, will you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? Well, notice what he says. As a matter of fact, let's back up. 
uh, he says, and we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve. He says, and he was saying, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice Jesus didn't answer him back word for word. Jesus did not come back and say, I will, I will remember you this day in my kingdom. No, what did he, what's he say? Instead was today you will be with me in paradise. So the question then is, where is paradise? Well, I believe paradise is in heaven. However, the better question not is where is paradise. The better question would be where was paradise? That's the more pertinent question. Wait a minute, Corey. Do you mean to tell me paradise has shifted locations? I do believe so, which is not, which is not beyond the realm of possibility because if we think about it, uh, is it possible that the tree of life has shifted locations? That's possible. We believe that as well. So leaving paradise in one place and moving, that's not, that is not an impossibility. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that's probably what happens. Now, before we get there, Jesus tells us exactly where he is going to be. Jesus says, speaking about his death, where he's going to go. Remember, he's speaking to these Jews, and I don't know why I made this super enlarged, but in Matthew 12, 38, he says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What does Jesus say? He says, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Well, none will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of the sea or the belly of the monster, so will the son of man, where will he be? Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus is explaining to him that he will be in the heart of the earth. They take that to be in the grave. They, they That part they do understand. Now, the question is, is this the physical grave? Well, we know he's going to be in the physical grave. But we also can probably believe that he's going to be um, in another place of the grave where the, the dead go. Now, the question is, where do the dead go at death? Well, remember, we're talking about a different dispensation prior to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and then after. There's a passage or there's a, there's a statement that Jesus makes in this parable that he gives and we believe the parable is pretty exact in terms of what happens. This is obviously the parable of the rich man uh, and Lazarus. And notice what he says in Luke 16. He says, now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed up in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gates covered with sores. Now we know the story. He died. Lazarus died. And then so to the rich man. Now going to verse 22, notice what it says. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now, there are a lot of folks that, that, that will let us, that, that lead us to believe or believe that Abraham's bosom is the same as paradise. And I want to keep going. Let's, let's, let's see what statement Jesus makes, because it seems to be there's a place for the dead to go. And it's awful close. He says in Hades, he lifted up, speaking of the, of the, uh, the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. In the grave, in Sheol, he lifted up his eyes, being tormented, and saw Abraham from far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And so, apparently, this rich man could see at that time where Lazarus was. Are you all tracking with me? And notice what he says. Verse 24, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus 
so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am hangry, angry, I'm sorry, in agony in this flame. Notice what he says here. He says, but Abraham said, child, remember during your life you received your good things, likewise Lazarus, bad things. Look at verse 26, and this is what I want to focus on. And besides all of this, even besides that, he says, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. So where the dead would go, this abode of the dead, there was a chasm fixed between those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. Remember, under the old, if you die, depending upon what state you're in, you're going to die in one of two states. One state you'll die in an unjustified state, meaning you are not in right standing before the Lord when you die. You love the world. You lived how you wanted to live. Hopefully, listen, I pray that if you go to hell, that you at least got to enjoy life on earth, which is what he's saying to the rich man. But then, now that also doesn't, doesn't negate the fact that you could enjoy life here on earth and go to heaven. Those two are not mutually exclusive. But then we see that there's another part where the abode of the dead for those who died in a righteous state, meaning that they stood justified before the Lord. Remember, according to the atonement, the old covenant atonement, a person could be in right standing if after afflicting their souls and adhering to what was required on the day of atonement, they would be in right standing with God for how long? One year. And this was a yearly ritual. Year after year after year after year after year. But as long as you died in right standing, you were in right standing. But there is a problem. The problem is all it did was keep you in right standing in terms of not going to hell, but there needed to be more. But the only point that I'm making with this passage here is just simply that there seems to be this gulf, this chasm between the abode of the dead, between those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. Now, Jesus does make a statement. He makes a point in it. Well, Jesus doesn't, but, but Paul does in Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse eight. Notice this passage. He says, therefore, it says when he, that's Jesus, ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. It also says he gave gifts to men. So now Jesus, when he ascended, he led on high captives. Who could this possibly be? Well, it couldn't be all of the believers because Paul wouldn't be there, nor would the believers that he's speaking of. So it can only refer to, remember, there are also a host of captives who will also be led on high with him. It couldn't be the unrighteous people that he led on high. It couldn't be them. The only other people that would be left would be the righteous people, those people who are in the boat of the dead, who are on the other side of the chasm that the rich man wanted to get to, you know, where Lazarus is. That's, those are those who are led on high. Notice what it continues to say. He says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, which is the atmosphere, so that he might feel all things. So what does it mean to feel all things? In other words, there was something that Jesus needed to do. There was something that was left to do. Yes, Jesus, I understand. We're asking a lot of you. We're asking you to be 
betrayed, to be beaten on, to be lied, spit at, all these things that you're going to endure. I know that's a lot. But then we're also going to ask you to go to the cross and bear all the sin and iniquity of men, of mankind. Doesn't mean that all of mankind's sin uh, will be atoned, well, it'll be atoned for, but it doesn't mean that it will be sufficient for all of mankind. They have to place their faith in that, in what you've done, though they won't. But we're asking a lot, Jesus, to take this beating and then to bear our sin and to go on the cross, this horrific death, to have your body punctured with these three nails and then have this crown of thorns fashioned in your head. And then ultimately to be mocked and scorned and then as the Bible says, to have God to forsake you. You cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To have all this happen, we're asking a lot. But we need more out of you, Jesus. We're going to need just a little bit more, right? Well, what's left to do? Well, there's a passage that we need to get. In 2 Corinthians, many of you have read this passage but have you read the next passage? Remember, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, behold, all things become new. Remember that passage? Well, let's see what it says after that. Verse 17 is a passage that we're probably all familiar with. But then verse 18 and 19 says, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us. Remember, the whole point of the atonement is reconciliation, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him as he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We're not actually doing the reconcil reconciling, but we're giving the word uh, to bring about this for people who would have faith. So Jesus's last thing that he's going to do in this earthly ministry here, really as he's leaving, is to, as he says, lead captive on high, and therefore everyone else subsequently who believes will also go immediately. You'll hear terms after the death, burial, and resurrection that you would not have heard even of godly men who had faith in God prior. There was no such statement like this that Paul makes that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That was never a possibility to be said under the old covenant in the Old Testament. Prior to the cross, you couldn't say that. Now you could. And so where has where has kept those captives, the host of captives been taken? They have been taken up to heaven. He ascended. The same one who descended is the very same one who ascended and led a host of captives up. Now, there are some who will fight this, well-meaning men who love the Lord, who would fight the notion of Jesus having had gone to hell. I understand. The reason why you might see that have someone who might disagree is because they have heard people say that Jesus went to hell and had to have his sins atoned for, that Jesus had to be born again in hell. That's clearly heresy. Jesus had no need to be born again. Jesus did not go to hell and was not tormented. Jesus on the cross made this famous statement to tell us die, which is that it is finished. And so his suffering was through at that point. There was no more torment for him to, uh, to, to, to come about. The next phase of what he was doing was about to take place and did not involve uh, suffering or torment. We don't have that to, we don't have any biblical account to make that stick.